William Morrow and Harper Audio present 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. Own your power, channel your confidence, and find your authentic voice for a life of meaning and joy. By Amy Morin. This is the author. Disclaimer. This audiobook contains advice and information relating to health care. It should be used to supplement rather than replace the advice of your doctor or another trained health professional. If you know or suspect you have a health problem, it is recommended that you seek your physician's advice before embarking on any medical program or treatment. All efforts have been made to assure the accuracy of the information contained in this book as of the date of publication. This publisher and the author disclaim liability for any medical outcomes that may occur as a result of applying the methods suggested in this book. To all the women who strive to become a little stronger today than they were yesterday. Introduction I grew up driving an ATV and catching night crawlers to use as fishing bait. I never liked dolls, I wasn't interested in makeup, and I hated to shop. But my skin, knees, messy hair, and dirty fingernails made for a wonderful childhood. My parents convinced me I could do whatever boys did, and I certainly tried. Whether it was racing the boys at recess or arm wrestling them into submission, I was able to keep up most of the time. But I wasn't trying to prove anything. I was just having fun. The first time I recall encountering the word sexist was when I was in the seventh grade. My algebra teacher always asked a sports-related bonus question that had nothing to do with math. But if you got the answer correct, he added five points to your test grade. It was frustrating that five points hinged on knowing who ran the most yards in Sunday's football game or who scored the most points in last year's NBA playoffs. But no one complained. One day, I was sick and had to stay home from school. I missed an algebra test, so I had to stay after school the following day to make it up. The bonus question was about a major league baseball player. Fortunately, I loved baseball, and I knew the answer. My teacher handed the graded test back to me the next day at the beginning of class. Written across the top of the page in red ink were the words, Zero bonus points. You only got this right because one of your friends told you the question ahead of time. I was horrified that my teacher thought I cheated, but I didn't say anything to him. I didn't know what to say, so I brought the test home and showed my dad. My dad promptly wrote a note back to the teacher. Amy owns more than 10,000 baseball cards, and she watches baseball games on TV with me every week. But because she got your bonus answer correct, you accused her of cheating. She knew the answer fair and square. But what's not fair is that you ask sports-related questions that have nothing to do with math. Clearly, you are trying to give the boys an advantage since most 13-year-old girls aren't following professional sports that closely. I gave the note to my teacher the next day and quickly took my seat. When he was done reading it, he announced to the class, I can't give you bonus questions anymore because someone's father thinks I'm sexist. That was the last time my teacher ever gave us a bonus question, and that was the first time I really thought about sexism. It occurred to me that he didn't assume my friends told me any of the math questions ahead of time, just the sports question. And he assumed I couldn't possibly know the answer to an obscure baseball question unless I cheated. I can't help but wonder if he would have made that same assumption if I was a boy. That happened 25 years ago, and I'd like to think teachers aren't still giving boys an unfair advantage in the classroom. But research shows it's still happening, and we'll talk more about those specifics later on. I'd also like to think students and parents wouldn't be so tolerant of something like that these days. Back then, no one said anything, and neither did their parents. We tolerated it. Had my teacher not accused me of cheating, I don't know if my father would have raised the issue. My ideas about sexism have certainly shifted since the seventh grade, and thankfully, so have our cultures. Still, women continue to face unique challenges in today's world. I've seen it in my therapy office, as well as in my own life. My interest in mental strength is personal. 
When I landed my first job as a therapist, I was excited to help people overcome the challenges they faced. I was armed with a master's degree and knowledge I'd gleaned from my textbooks, college lectures, and internships. During my first year as a therapist, however, my mother passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. My quest to learn about mental strength became personal. I started studying everyone who came into my therapy office on a deeper level. I realized that some people were more likely to get better than others. They bounced back faster, they were hopeful about the future, and no matter what problems they faced, they persisted. I wanted to know what specifically made these people tick. Then, in a cruel twist of fate, on the three-year anniversary of my mother's death, my 26-year-old husband, Lincoln, died of a heart attack. Being a 26-year-old widow was a surreal experience. The grief was overwhelming at times, but I knew that allowing myself to experience painful emotions was part of the healing process. By then, I was armed with new knowledge about mental strength. I had discovered that people who persevered in life didn't just have healthy habits. They were also intentional about avoiding the unhealthy habits that would keep them stuck. I was starting to see clear patterns in the people I worked with. Those who were intent on reaching their greatest potential refused to indulge in counterproductive bad habits. The key to their progress wasn't just what they did, it was more about what they didn't do. I applied what I'd learned to my own life as I worked through my grief. It took several years for my heart to heal. I was fortunate enough to find love again when I met Steve. But shortly after we got married, Steve's dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. I found myself thinking things like, this isn't fair. Why do I have to keep losing my loved ones? But I knew that allowing myself to indulge in self-pity was one of those bad habits that would drain my mental strength at a time when I needed it the most. So I wrote a letter to myself reminding me of all of those bad habits that could keep me stuck in a place of misery. When I was done, I had a list of 13 things mentally strong people don't do. I read over the list many times in the following days, and the reminders of what not to do gave me some solace. I decided if I found that list helpful, maybe others would too. So I published it online, hoping my message on mental strength might resonate with someone else. Within a matter of days, the article went viral. It was read by more than 50 million people. Before I knew it, media outlets like Forbes and CNN were asking me about my list. My article didn't explain the context of the list, however, so everyone assumed I'd written it because I'd mastered everything on it. But the truth was, I still needed a reminder to avoid those 13 things. I was grateful to have the chance to write the book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, to explain the story behind the viral article. And when readers kept asking me how to teach kids to be mentally strong, I was thrilled to be able to write 13 things mentally strong parents don't do. Since I began talking about mental strength, I fielded many questions from women, especially in light of the Me Too revelations. And while the principles of mental strength are the same for everyone, women experience different cultural pressures than men. Consequently, there are some specific bad habits that we're more likely to engage in, struggle with, and experience compared to our male counterparts. The three components of mental strength. Mental strength is a lot like physical strength. When it comes to growing stronger and becoming better, good habits are important. But your good habits will only get you so far in life if you're performing bad habits right alongside them. If I wanted to grow physically strong, I might lift weights. But if I really wanted to see some muscle definition, I'd need to give up eating too much junk food. Otherwise, my workouts wouldn't be all that effective. The same can be said for your mental muscles. You need good habits, like gratitude, to grow stronger. But if you really want to see results, you also have to give up bad habits, like comparing yourself with other people. It's important to note that having a mental illness doesn't mean you're weak. Just like someone with diabetes could choose to become physically strong, someone with depression can choose to become mentally strong. An illness can make building muscle more complicated, but it's still possible. 
You aren't either mentally strong or mentally weak. Everyone possesses mental strength to a certain degree. And no matter how strong you are, there's always room for improvement. It's important to keep working your mental muscles, too. If you grow lax about building strength, your mental muscles will atrophy. There are three parts to mental strength. Thoughts. It's important to develop a realistic inner monologue. Thinking overly negative thoughts like, I'll never succeed, will drag you down. But you also don't want to think in an overly positive way. Saying things like, this will be easy, could cause you to enter a situation unprepared. Feelings. While it's healthy to experience a wide range of emotions, you don't have to let your feelings control you. If you wake up in a grumpy mood, you can take steps to feel better. When you're angry, knowing how to calm yourself down can prevent you from doing something you regret. The more mental strength you build, the more aware you'll become of your emotions and how those emotions affect your choices. Behavior. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, it's important to take positive action. Whether you go to the gym when you're tired or you speak up in a meeting when you're filled with self-doubt, your choices can change your life. Even if you can't solve a problem, you can always choose to make your life or someone else's life better. All three aspects of mental strength are interrelated. If you think, I don't have anything valuable to say, you'll feel awkward about speaking up. That, in turn, will likely affect your behavior, as you'll probably stay silent. Consequently, your belief that you don't have anything to add to the conversation will be reinforced. We all get caught up in negative patterns like this in our lives. Building mental strength disrupts those unhealthy cycles and helps you develop better habits so you can live a more fulfilling life. Why the focus is on women. I wanted to write a book for women that portrays strength in an accurate light. While many people refer to Navy SEALs as the epitome of mental toughness, women, who tend to be more nurturing and place more value on relationships, can also exemplify mental strength. You don't have to suppress your emotions, deny your pain, or push yourself to your physical limits to be strong. Studies show women find that mental strength plays an important role in their lives. In 2015 and 2016, Kellogg surveyed 6,000 women across the globe about inner strength. Here are a few of their findings. 92% of women said inner strength is important in today's world. 90% of women consider inner strength to be the key to success. 71% of women feel that with more strength, they could reach their full potential. 82% of women wish they possessed greater reserves of inner strength. Clearly, women want to be mentally stronger, but many aren't sure how to build their mental muscles. I wrote this book for women with two goals in mind. One, empower women to build their mental muscles so they can become the strongest and best versions of themselves. Two, Encourage women to create a ripple effect that will inspire others to become mentally stronger. I've interviewed women from across the country, and in this book, I'll share their stories, challenges, and strategies. I'll also share case studies from my therapy office that show what happens when women give up the bad habits that rob them of mental strength. The following 13 chapters aren't meant to be a checklist of things you either do or don't do. We all engage in these unhealthy practices at one time or another, especially when we encounter adversity. There have probably been times in your life when you felt strong, powerful, and unstoppable, but those instances may feel few and far between. You've probably also caught glimpses of how strong you could be, like in those moments when you almost make a brave move. Wouldn't it be nice to draw upon your inner strength all the time so you can reach your greatest potential? This book is meant to help you do just that. I'm not going to tell you you need to be doing more grueling activities to live a better life. There are too many messages out there already insisting you should be doing more to improve yourself. Instead, I'll explain how to give up the bad habits that are draining you of the strength you've already tried so hard to build. I'll teach you how to work smarter, 
not just harder, so you can become the best version of yourself. Chapter one. They don't compare themselves to other people. Every flower blooms at a different pace. Susie Cassum. Kara began therapy because she felt like she wasn't as happy as she should be. She was a 28-year-old nurse, and she loved her job in the pediatric unit of a hospital. She'd been with her boyfriend for almost a year, and she felt confident that he was the one. She had a great relationship with her parents and her older brother, and she had plenty of friends. She was doing well financially thanks to the house she inherited when her grandmother passed away. Without rent or a mortgage, she'd paid off her student loans early. Despite having everything she wanted, she felt dissatisfied, and that caused her to feel guilty and ungrateful.
how's everyone doing? What is an external locus of control? This, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> excuse me. External locus of control, as you probably could have guessed, a person with an external locus of control is someone who believes that there is a powerful force that affects their choices and future. These people often find themselves demotivated as they feel as if their actions do not influence the outcome of their lives. That's according to the website, the advocate.org and the next website alleydog.com external locus of control definition psychology glossary external locus of control, a person with an external locus of control is more likely to believe that his or her fate is determined by chance or outside forces that are beyond their own personal control. This strategy can be healthy sometimes. Next at Springer.com External locus of control is the best Correction is the belief that one's behavior will not lead to valued reinforcement that is available in the environment and therefore not under one's control. The occurrence of reinforcement is believed to be a function of factors out of one's control, such as luck, chance, or randomness. PsychologyToday.com says a person with an external locus of control will tend to feel that other forces such as random chance, environmental factors, or the actions of others are more responsible for the events that occur. Study.com says Locus of Control Definition and Examples People who based their success on their own work and believe they control their life have an 
internal focus of control. In contrast, people who attribute their success or failure to outside. And then you have to click on the link to get the rest of the paragraph. Simplypsychology.org, locus of control, is how much individuals perceive that they themselves have control over their own actions as opposed to events in life occurring instead because of external forces. It is measured along a dimension of high internal to high external. And there's plenty more websites. Verywellmind.com A focus of control. A correction. A locus of control. Orientation is a belief about whether the outcomes of our actions are contingent on what we do, known as internal control orientation, or on events outside our personal control, known as external control orientation. Explained psychologist Phil Zimbardo in his book, Psychology and Life. This is one of the authors that believe he was a Stanford professor when he and his graduate students did the Stanford prison experiment in which they paid people from the local area around Stanford University and students to be part of an experiment designed to simulate a prison with prison guards and inmates designed to demonstrate the amount of control that would would eventually manifest itself in a hostile environment. And that's available to be read nearly everywhere on the internet. It's called the Stanford, like the Stanford University, S-T-A-N-D-F-O-R-D, Stanford, the Stanford prison experiment with Dr. Phil or Philip Zimbardo. Well, this very well mind website has theories, personality, psychology, locus of control, and your life written by Kendra Sherry, excuse me, updated on August 
internal versus external impacts determine your locus of control outlook one and many more links to click on it says locus of control refers to the extent to which people feel that they have control over the events that influence their lives. When you are dealing with a challenge in your life, do you feel that you have control over the outcome? Or do you believe that you are simply at the hands of outside forces? If you believe that you have control over what happens, then you have what psychologists refer to as an internal locus of control. If you believe that you have no control over what happens and that external variables are to blame, then you have what is known as an external locus of control. Your locus of control can influence not only how you respond to the e events that happen in your life, but also your motivation to take action. If you believe that you hold the keys to your fate, you are more likely to take action to change your situation when needed. If, on the other hand, you believe that the outcome is out of your hands, you may be less likely to work toward change. Press play for advice on controlling your life hosted by editor-in-chief and therapist Amy Morin LCSW, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. This episode of the Very Well Mind Podcast shares how to stop focusing on things you can't control. Welcome to the Very Well Mind Podcast. I'm Amy Morin, the Editor-in-Chief of Very Well Mind. I'm also a psychotherapist and a best-selling author of four books on mental strength. Every Friday, I share a quick mental strength strategy that will help fix the thoughts, feelings, and actions that could hold you back in life. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Today, I'm talking about how to stop focusing on things that you can't control. There's a whole chapter in my book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, about this subject. Worrying about things that you can't control drains you of mental strength. Not to mention it wastes time and wastes a lot of precious brain power. It's tough not to do it though. We all do it sometimes. We worry about what someone else is going to do rather than focus on managing our response. Or we worry about what's going to happen next rather than think about how we'll handle the situation. I'm certainly guilty of it. 
And it's also a common issue I address in therapy. Sometimes people want to spend their therapy appointments talking about how their mother-in-law should change their behavior or how their partner needs to do things differently. Usually the root of the problem is the same though. People are trying to manage their anxiety. They worry that they can't control their inner turmoil. So they focus all their efforts on trying to control the situation or other people. I once worked with this woman who wanted to spend her therapy appointments telling me about how her adult daughter was wasting her money. Her daughter was a single mom living on a limited income, yet she always bought expensive clothes and high-end purses. She drove a really nice car. She went to the spa all the time. My client would often lecture her daughter about her spending habits, and she spent a lot of energy worrying about all the silly things her daughter bought. She wanted to know what she could do to make her daughter straighten up. She'd say things like, she has to make a budget, or she can't keep spending like this. Her treatment involved learning how to let go of her need to control her daughter's habits. Although her daughter was in financial trouble, it wasn't my client's fault, and it wasn't her place to fix it. She had expressed her concerns to her daughter and even offered to assist her in creating changes, but it was clear her daughter didn't want her help right now. So my work with her involved helping her establish healthy boundaries, something she could control. She could say no if her daughter invited her, her to go shopping because she really didn't want to watch her daughter buy things with money she didn't have. Or she could refuse to loan her daughter money. She could choose to end conversations when her daughter talked about how unfair it was that she couldn't afford more stuff than she already had. She had choices. There were things that she could control, which were all about her response to her daughter's behavior. And as what often happens when people shift their focus, her anxiety initially got a little bit worse before it got better. But once she stayed committed to focusing on the things she could control, she was free to work on managing her emotions so she could eventually invest her time and energy into other things. But even if you aren't trying to control someone else's behavior, there are many ways in which you might be focusing on things you can't control. Consider these questions. Number one, do you struggle with teamwork because you doubt the abilities of other people? Number two, if you fail at something, do you think that you're 100% responsible? Number three, do you invest a lot of time into wishing other people would change? Number four, are you uncomfortable asking for help? And number five, do you have trouble establishing meaningful relationships because you don't trust people? Number six, do you spend a lot of energy trying to prevent bad things from happening? Number seven, do you believe the outcome of any situation is entirely based on how much effort you put in? Number nine, do other people ever accuse you of being a control freak? And number 10, do you struggle to delegate tasks to other people because you don't think that they'll do the job right? The more of those questions that you answered yes to, the more you're focusing on things that you can't control. Fortunately, though, there are steps that you can take to fix that. I'm going to give you five strategies that can help. Number one. Determine what you can control. When you find yourself worrying, take a minute to think about what you can control. You can't prevent a storm from coming, but you could prepare for it. You can't control how someone else behaves, but you can control how you respond. One of the most powerful examples of this I've ever heard involved kids who were receiving cancer treatments. Many of these kids reported that their pain scales were off the charts. They had to undergo painful scans and treatments to save their lives. But sometimes nurses and doctors had to hold them down. But then some really smart people decided to teach these kids breathing exercises. After all, that's one thing that they could control. And when these kids started to focus on their breathing, their pain levels went down. So whenever you think you can't control anything, remember there's always something you can control, even if it's just the way that you breathe. Number two. Focus on your influence. You can influence people in circumstances, but you can't force things to go your way. So while you could give your child the tools that they need to get good grades, you can't make them get straight A's. And while you can plan a really good party, you can't force people to have fun. To have the most influence, focus on changing your behavior. Be a good role model, set healthy boundaries, and make your expectations known.
When you have concerns about someone else's choices, you can share your opinion, but just share it once. Don't try to fix people who don't want to be fixed. Number three, identify your fears. Ask yourself, what am I afraid will happen? Are you predicting a catastrophic outcome? Do you doubt your ability to cope with disappointment? Sometimes people are so busy thinking things like, I can't allow my business to fail. But they don't take time to ask themselves, what would I do if my business did fail? Sometimes you just have to play that tape through until the end. The worst case scenario might not be as bad as you think. Number four, differentiate between ruminating and problem solving. Replaying conversations in your head or imagining catastrophic outcomes over and over again isn't helpful. But solving a problem is. So ask if your thinking is productive. If you're actively solving a problem, keep working on finding solutions. If you're wasting your time ruminating, though, change the channel in your brain. Get up and go do something for a few minutes to get your brain focused on something more productive. And number five. Develop a couple of mantras to quiet your mind. I have a couple of phrases I use to remind myself to either take action or calm down. When there's something I can control, I just tell myself, make it happen. Then I'm reminded to do something, even if it's just manage my response. At other times, I remind myself, I can handle this. That works well when there's something I just don't have any control over. So rather than worry about something bad happening, I just remind myself, if it does... I'll be okay. But you might find it helpful to create your own little mantras that you can use to drown out the negative thoughts that might try to trick you into focusing on things that you can't control. So those are five things that you can do the next time you're tempted to waste time worrying about things that you can't control. Determine what you can control. Focus on your influence. Identify your fears. Determine whether you're ruminating or problem solving and create a helpful mantra. You also might want to go check out episode number 30 about how to stop overthinking because focusing on things you can't control often goes hand in hand with overthinking. And if you know someone who could benefit from hearing this message, share it with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. And if you like the show, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite platform. Thank you for hanging out with me today and listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who has really good taste in TV shows, Nick Valentine. In case you haven't heard, my first ever mental strength book for kids is now on sale. It's called 13 Things Strong Kids Do, and every chapter is filled with actionable strategies that will help kids build the mental strength they need to think big, feel good, and act brave. It's available at Amazon, Target.com, and everywhere books are sold. Introduction. When I was 23, my mother died suddenly from a brain aneurysm. She'd always been a healthy, hardworking, vibrant woman who had loved life right up until her last minute on earth. In fact, I saw her the night before she died. We met at an auditorium to watch a high school basketball tournament. She was laughing, talking, and enjoying life like she always did. But just 24 hours later, she was gone. The loss of my mother affected me deeply. I couldn't imagine going through the rest of my life without her advice, laughter, or love. At the time, I was working as a therapist at a community mental health center, and I took a few weeks off to privately deal with my grief. I knew I couldn't be effective at helping other people unless I was able to productively deal with my own feelings. Becoming used to a life that no longer included my mother was a process. It wasn't easy, but I worked hard to get myself back on my feet. From my training as a therapist, I knew that time doesn't heal anything. It's how we deal with that time that determines the speed at which we heal. I understood that grief was a necessary process that would eventually alleviate my pain 
So I allowed myself to feel sad, to get angry, and to fully accept what I'd truly lost when my mother passed away. It wasn't just that I missed her. It was also the painful realization that she would never be there again during the important events in my life, and that she would never experience the things she'd look forward to, like retire from her job and become a grandmother. With supportive friends and family and my faith in God, I found a sense of peace. And as life went on, I was able to remember my mother with a smile rather than pangs of sadness. A few years later, as we approached the third anniversary of my mother's death, my husband Lincoln and I discussed how to best honor her memory that weekend. Friends had invited us to watch a basketball game on Saturday evening. Coincidentally, the game was being played at the same auditorium where we'd last seen my mother. Lincoln and I talked about what it would be like to go back to that place where we'd seen her just three years ago on the night before she passed away. We decided it would be a wonderful way to celebrate her life. After all, my memories of her that night were very good. We'd laughed, had a chance to talk about all kinds of things, and had an all-around great evening. My mother had even predicted my sister would get married to her boyfriend at the time, and a few years later, that prediction came true. So Lincoln and I returned to the auditorium, and we enjoyed spending time with our friends. We knew it was what my mother would have wanted. It felt nice to go back and feel okay about being there. But just as I took a sigh of relief about my progress in dealing with my mother's death, my entire life was once again turned upside down. After returning home from the basketball game, Lincoln complained of back pain. He'd broken several vertebrae in a car accident a few years prior, so back pain wasn't unusual for him. But just a few minutes later, he collapsed. I called for paramedics, and they arrived within minutes and transported him to the hospital. I called his mother, and his family met me in the emergency room. I had no idea what could possibly be wrong with him. After a few minutes in the emergency room waiting area, we were called into a private room. Before the doctor even said a word, I knew what he was going to say. Lincoln had passed away. He'd had a heart attack. On the same weekend that we honored the three-year anniversary of my mother's death, I now found myself a widow. It just didn't make any sense. Lincoln was only 26, and he didn't have any history of heart problems. He could be here one minute and gone the next. I was still adjusting to life without my mother, and now I'd have to learn how to deal with life without Lincoln. I couldn't imagine how I would get through this. Dealing with the death of a spouse is such a surreal experience. There were so many choices to be made at a time when I really wasn't in any shape to decide anything. Within a matter of hours, I had to start making decisions about everything from the funeral arrangements to the wording of the obituary. There wasn't any time to let the reality of this situation really sink in. It was completely overwhelming. I was fortunate to have many people in my life who supported me. A journey through grief is an individual process, but loving friends and family certainly helped. There were times when it seemed to get a little easier and times when it would get worse. Just when I'd think I was getting better, I'd turn another corner to find overwhelming sadness waiting for me. Grief is an emotionally, mentally, and physically exhausting process. There were so many things to feel sad about, too. I felt sad for my husband's family, knowing how much they'd loved Lincoln. I felt sad about all the things Lincoln would never experience. And I was sad about all the things we'd never get to do together, not to mention how much I missed him. I took as much time off from work as I could. Those months are mostly a blur as I was focused on just putting one foot in front of the other every day. But I couldn't stay out of work forever. I was down to just one income, and I had to get back into the office. After a couple of months, my supervisor called and asked about my plans to return to work. My clients had been told I would be out of the office indefinitely while I dealt with a family emergency. They weren't given any type of time frame about how long I'd be out, since we weren't really sure what was going to happen. But now, they needed an answer. I certainly wasn't done grieving, and I definitely wasn't better, but I needed to get back to work. Just like when I'd lost my mother, I had to allow myself time to experience the sorrow head-on. There was no ignoring it or pushing it away. I had to experience the pain while also proactively helping myself heal. I couldn't allow myself to stay stuck in my negative emotions. Although it would have been easy to pity myself or dwell on my past memories, I knew it wouldn't be healthy. I had to make a conscious choice to start down a long road to building a new life for myself. 
I had to decide whether some of the goals Lincoln and I shared together were still going to be my goals. We'd been foster parents for a few years and had planned to eventually adopt a child. But did I still want to adopt a child as a single woman? I continued my work as a foster parent, providing mostly emergency and respite placements for the next few years, but I wasn't sure I still wanted to adopt a child without Lincoln. I also had to create new goals for myself now that I was alone. I decided to venture out and try new things. I got my motorcycle license and bought a motorcycle. I also began writing. At first it was mostly a hobby, but eventually it turned into a part-time job. I had to renegotiate new relationships with people as well by figuring out which of Lincoln's friends would remain my friends and what my relationship with his family would be like without him. Fortunately for me, many of his closest friends maintained friendships with me, and his family continued to treat me like part of their family. About four years later, I was fortunate enough to find love again, or maybe I should say love found me. I was sort of getting used to life as a single person, but that all changed when I began dating Steve. We'd known each other for years, and slowly our friendship turned into a relationship. Eventually, we started talking about a future together. Although I'd never thought I'd get married again, with Steve, it just seemed right. I didn't want a formal wedding or a reception that parodied the ceremony I'd had with Lincoln. Although I knew my guests would be thrilled to see me marry again, I also knew it would conjure up pains of sadness for people as they remembered Lincoln. I didn't want my wedding day to be a somber occasion, so Steve and I decided to have a non-traditional wedding. We eloped to Las Vegas, and it was a completely joyous occasion that centered around our love and happiness. About a year after we married, we decided to sell the house that Lincoln and I had lived in, and we moved a few hours away. We'd be closer to my sister and my nieces, and it gave us an opportunity to have a fresh start. I got a job at a busy medical practice, and we were looking forward to enjoying our future together. Just as life seemed to be going great, our road to happiness took another strange twist when Steve's father was diagnosed with cancer. Initially, doctors predicted that his treatment could help keep the cancer at bay for several years. But after a few months, it was clear that he wasn't likely to survive one year, let alone several. He tried a few different options, but nothing really worked. As time went on, the doctors grew more perplexed by his lack of response to treatment. After about seven months, he'd run out of treatment options. The news hit me like a ton of bricks. Rob was so full of life. He was the kind of guy who could always pull a quarter from behind a kid's ear, and he told some of the funniest stories I've ever heard. Although he lived in Minnesota and we lived in Maine, we saw him often. Since he was retired, he had the availability to visit us for weeks at a time, and I'd always joked with him that he was my favorite house guest, because he was basically our only house guest. He was also one of my biggest fans when it came to my writing. He read whatever I wrote, whether it was an article about parenting or a piece on psychology.
He read whatever I wrote, whether it was an article about parenting or a piece on psychology. Quite often he'd call me with story ideas and suggestions. Even though Rob was 72, it felt like he was too young to be sick. Right up until the previous summer, he was motorcycling across the country, sailing around Lake Superior, and cruising the countryside with the top down in his convertible. But now he was too sick, and the doctors were clear. He was only going to get worse. This time I had a different experience dealing with death. My mother's and Lincoln's deaths were completely unexpected and sudden. But this time I had warning. I knew what was coming, and it filled me with a sense of dread. I found myself thinking, here we go again. I didn't really want to go through such a staggering loss all over again. It just didn't seem right. I knew plenty of people my age who haven't lost anyone, so why did I have to lose so many of my loved ones? I sat at the table thinking about how unfair it was, how hard it was going to be, and how much I wanted things to be different. I also knew I couldn't let myself go down that road. After all, I'd been through this before, and I'd be okay again. If I let myself fall into the trap of thinking my situation was worse than anyone else's, or if I convinced myself that I couldn't handle one more loss, it wasn't going to help. Instead, it would only hold me back from dealing with the reality of my situation. It was at that moment that I sat down and wrote my list, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. They were the habits I'd fought so hard against to come out on the other side of my grief. They were the things that could hold me back from getting better if I allowed them to take hold of me. Not surprisingly, they were the same skills I was giving to the clients who entered my therapy office, but writing them down was something I needed to do to help me stay on track. It was a reminder that I could choose to be mentally strong, and I needed to be strong, because a few weeks after writing down that list, Rob passed away. Psychotherapists are known for helping others build on their strengths, doling out tips on how they should act and what they can do to improve themselves. But when I created my list on mental strength, I decided to stray for a moment from what has become second nature to me, and focusing on what not to do has made all the difference. Good habits are important, but it's often our bad habits that prevent us from reaching our full potential. You can have all the good habits in the world, but if you keep doing the bad habits alongside the good ones, you'll struggle to reach your goals. Think of it this way, you're only as good as your worst habits. Bad habits are like heavy weights that you drag around as you go about your day. They'll slow you down, tire you out, and frustrate you. Despite your hard work and talent, you'll struggle to reach your full potential when you've got certain thoughts, behaviors, and feelings holding you back. Picture a man who chooses to go to the gym every day. He works out for almost two hours. He keeps a careful record of the exercises he performs so he can track his progress. Over the course of six months, he isn't noticing much of a change. He feels frustrated that he's not losing weight and gaining muscle. He tells his friends and family that it just doesn't make sense why he's not looking and feeling better. After all, he rarely ever misses a workout. What he leaves out of the equation is the fact that he enjoys a treat on his drive home from the gym every day. After all that exercise, he feels hungry and tells himself, I've worked hard. I deserve a treat. So each day, he eats one dozen donuts on his drive home. Seems ridiculous, right? But we're all guilty of this kind of behavior. We work hard to do all the things that we think will make us better, but we forget to focus on the things that might be sabotaging our efforts. Avoiding these 13 habits isn't just what will help you through grief. Getting rid of them will help you develop mental strength, which is essential to dealing with all life's problems, big or small. No matter what your goals are, you'll be better equipped to reach your full potential when you're feeling mentally strong. What is mental strength? It's not that people are either mentally strong or mentally weak. We all possess some degree of mental strength, but there's always room for improvement. Developing mental strength is about improving your ability to regulate your emotions, manage your thoughts, and behave in a positive manner, despite your circumstances. Just as there are those among us who are predisposed to develop physical strength more easily than others, mental strength seems to come more naturally to some people. There are several factors at play to determine the ease at which you develop mental strength. 
Genetics. Genes play a role in whether or not you may be more prone to mental health issues, such as mood disorders. Personality. Some people have personality traits that help them think more realistically and behave more positively by nature. Experiences. Your life experiences influence how you think about yourself, other people, and the world in general. Obviously, you can't change some of these factors. You can't erase a bad childhood. You can't help it if you are genetically predisposed to ADHD. Tribal.